0: Amen. How are y'all doing? Good. It hasn't worship Already been really good this morning through song. And uh, y'all awake? You ready to go? Yeah. All right. I spoke at a youth event this weekend and got in last night. So uh, I'm trying to get awake. I'm getting there. All right. Uh, it was fun, but I'm glad to be back in big church. I'll tell you that. I'm glad to be here with you. All right. Go to James chapter one. Uh, James chapter one. And, uh, and as you're turning there, I want to say, I want you to know how much I appreciate you, appreciate our church family. And as we reflect back on 2021, just to see uh, how our church family continued in a difficult year to come together and how committed you are to fund the mission that God's called us here to here at Schindler Drive, Uh, it's just amazing. And I look forward to reporting more about that. And then to see at the end of last year, uh, you come together as we uh, all heard reports about the disaster going on in Kentucky. Remember in December with the tornadoes and people's lives being torn apart and, uh, and and we came together, and, and you gave over $3,000 to go towards helping churches uh, get repaired but also do ministry, and we committed that we would um, make sure that that got into the right hands, that we got that to people we knew would use it not to only help you know, rebuild lives physically but also point people uh, to what their their greatest need is, and that's Jesus. And so we were able to, in the last couple of weeks, connect with the church Uh, that's doing really good work, uh, whose uh, buildings were damaged, they were devastated themselves, and they're uh, not just seeing the the support that they're getting, the the resources that's being sent to them as ways for them to rebuild their own church, but using it to be the hands and feet of Christ in their community. It's called First Baptist Church of Mayfield, Kentucky. I was able to talk to their pastor this past week, was super encouraged to hear about how God's using them, and I thought you'd be encouraged for you to take a look at it as well. Take a look.
1: Hear people screaming, cries for help. Couldn't tell where they were, where it was coming from. Power lines down, buildings down, debris in the street resembled what I think a war zone would look like. My wife and I, and our family, uh, with our youth pastor and his family, we went down to, to the basement. We have a tunnel here that actually connects two of our facilities, and we could hear the storm getting closer. We could hear it getting worse. Power went out. We heard and saw the ceiling tiles in the tunnel violently, shaking up and down, falling out. The tunnel filled with debris and dirt, and it was like a cloud of smoke in the tunnel. It was a very, very scary situation. we, in that moment, we got our families, and we put them against the wall. And then we got on top of our families, and, and we covered them the best that we could. I was telling my family, we're gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. I kept telling that over and over. Uh, The truth is, in my head, I I didn't know that. It didn't feel like we were going to be okay. My wife was concerned. She told me later that she thought we were going to die, which is a terrible feeling. And then it uh, probably lasted 30 seconds to a minute. It felt like longer. We went out to see some of the debris and to see some of the destruction, and it was uh, just a very bad scene. Every part of our structure is, is damaged. Ceilings ripped off, roofs ripped off, windows busted out. Uh, just devastating scene. But then as you look around Mayfield, I mean, there's a lot worse. Complete buildings knocked down, structures knocked down. Oh, it's devastation. I mean, uh, like I said, I grew, up, I grew up four blocks from this church. And all these stores, you know, I've known since I was born. And it was just sad to see them all in, in pieces. Despite most of the other large buildings in Mayfield being knocked down, our church still stands. Amazing to me that in the education building across the street, that cross that we put up in the window is still there, and the window's gone. Everything else is gone. The cross still stands. In the middle of the storm, there's only one place where we truly have peace. Amen. And that's when we place our faith and our trust in Jesus. Right now, the town is coming together around this, around this tragedy. And uh, I, th- I think it'll take years. But I do think we'll rebuild, and I think we're going to be okay. When thinking about life and death, let's tell them about life, eternal life. So it's heart-wrenching
0: to see those photos, but also you can already see the power of God at work, right? And so it's a, it's a blessing to be able to partner from down here in Florida, to be able to, to send a, just a small gift, to be able to partner with them. And I'm confident that they're going to use that to do some really good gospel work. Continue to pray for them. I want you to think about this. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice And weep with those who weep. And you know we are seeking, as we're doing what I just showed you, sending resources and sending help, we're seeking to obey Scripture. We're seeking to not just be hearers of the Word, but to be doers of the Word. That's exactly what James is getting at in the text that we're going to look at this morning. We're walking through uh, the book of James on Sunday mornings. We feel like this is a good book for us to walk through as we move into a new year. Uh, James is a book that shows us what authentic faith looks like what authentic faith talks like, how it thinks, how it lives. It's a clear, it's a practical book. And as you study it, you begin to sense how a stone-cold seriousness in James about seeing people who call themselves disciples be mature, growing, serious, steady disciples. And so I was tempted to to move past this text and to jump into chapter 2 because not too long ago, I actually walked through this text on a Sunday morning. Uh, you don't look like you remember that, all right? So I hopefully you took good notes. Uh, but we, uh, we did walk through this. And uh, However, I looked at the date of when we last were in this, and it was January of 2020. And a lot's happened since January of 2020. So I thought it would be good for us to walk through it again. And I just kind of blank page, didn't look at those old notes, and just jumped right in. And just was, my heart was encouraged as to how every time you come back to God's Word, it, it's never stale. It always provides truth in a fresh way. And I hope that you'll find that as well this morning as we get into this. Stand with your Bibles open. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Verse 26, if anybody thinks he is, a relig- he, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but dece- dece- deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Have a seat as I pray. Father, I thank you for this day, Lord. I pray that as a result of being in your word, you would increase our affections for your son. Lord, I pray that today that you would make your word a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would continue a work of restoration in our lives as we are in your word, that you would lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help our minds to understand what we can't understand on our own, our hearts to believe what we can't believe on our own and in and of our own strength, and help us to take your truth and to apply it in our life in real ways, in ways we cannot apart from the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. We give this service to you. It is not about us. It is all about you. Protect this room from this man's opinion. May your words speak to our hearts and change us forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned a few weeks ago that as you read through James, all of Scripture, really, you should hear echoes of all of Scripture because it all goes together. Uh, but there's a specific part of Scripture, two parts, that you should hear echoes of. So as you move through James, you'll find yourself being reminded of specifically of Proverbs and of Jesus' teachings, uh, namely the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, reading what we just read, listen to what Jesus said, the older brother of James. Uh, Listen to what he said, Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a wise man... I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Let's let the Word of God speak. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock... And great was the fall of it. And so what Pastor James is doing is he's at the heart of a pastor. He's coming alongside of us. And he is is passionate about seeing us develop as disciples who, uh, who depict what Jesus is giving us a picture of right there. He wants to see us mature. He wants to see us with roots that are deep down into the ground that can persevere through the storms and the winds and the wickedness of this world that are able to to navigate the the minefields of temptation that surrounds us. And you'll find him reaching back to the teachings of his older brother, but more importantly, his Lord and his Savior uh, with a very important, essential discipline for our life in order to make that happen. If you want to be a house that stands strong on a rock, and not on shifty sands that falls, James is telling us exactly what Jesus taught him. You better learn how to be a disciple who learns to hear the word and do the word. That's what he's getting at. All right, so now a lot of us are, you know, we're either stronger on one side or the other. Some of us are stronger on the hearer side. We're good at knowing, right? We love, we're good hearers. We love to study the word of God. We like to get new Bibles. We love to just talk about the leather that's bound in. You know, we kind of geek out over the different kind of Bibles we have. We love to get Bible, books that talk about our Bibles. We love commentaries. We like Bible software. We like reading the footnotes. Some of you are the kind of person that you're going to be fact-checking me with your Bible software as I'm preaching in real time, this morning maybe. And that's a good thing. Knowledge is a good thing, it's a needed thing, but it's a meaningless thing if it just stays a knowledge thing. Others are strong on the doing side. Like you prefer your Bible in a minute, devotion in the morning, you got things to do, you gotta go, you got places to go. You may get in a little devotion, audio devotion while you're working out, but you sitting still and kind of combing through a passage of scripture, I mean, you kind of stir like a little... Like a little kid who, who is active and energetic and has a short attention span and has been asked to sit in a chair and time out. It's like, I got to go. I got to move. You struggle with the sitting down and knowing part, but you're better at the acting part, the active part. And what James says is you need both. You need to be someone who's hearing the word, slowing down, digesting the word, meditating on the word, studying the word, hearing the word, but a doer of the word. Any? Kind of lays it it out in three steps this morning in order for us to develop as that kind of disciple. He says you got to turn into somebody who does three things with God's word. And the first one's this: you got to treasure it. You got to treasure it. Now we got to back up a little bit to, you know, make that point. I'm backing up into last week's passage in order to make it. Uh, but if you, if you were here last week, you'll remember uh, that last week we learned that uh, you know, we're not to blame shift, that there's a temptation to do that when we sin, uh, never be deceived into thinking that God's tempting you to sin. But instead, in verse 17, know this about God. He said, know this unchanging truth about God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. You know what that means? Every good gift that you enjoyed today came from God. All right, so if you enjoyed a big cup of liquid caffeine this morning called coffee, anybody praise the Lord for some coffee this morning, right? I'm Seven people in here like coffee. You're lying to me right now. <laughs> you, some of y'all are that kind of person that your family knows to stay away from you until you get your coffee, right? Coffee, that's a good gift. Hey, praise God for that. If you uh, warmed to, to perfection a Krispy Kreme donut this morning, hey, anybody praise God for that kind of gift? Yeah, some of us. And you bite into that, hey, bless his holy name for that gift. Some of y'all are gonna be kicking back like me in a recliner this afternoon. For who, who enjoys your Sunday afternoon nap? Anybody? All right, get you a good meal, kick back for a little nap, all right? Praise his holy name for a good nap. There's all kinds of things that we would consider good gifts that we'd put on a list uh, that we would call gifts of God's common grace. There's gifts in the world just because he's a good God. that he he rains down on the the just and the unjust, all right? And that's just an amazing truth. Oftentimes, people get distracted by the question of suffering. How could a good God allow so much suffering? Here's a better question. How could God allow his good gifts of common grace to fall on the just and the unjust? That's an amazing thing. Now, those of us who understand because we've connected with the gospel Uh, what those good gifts are and who they come from, we turn them back around and praise the Lord. You know, hence, thank you for the coffee. Praise God for coffee in the morning. But in verse 18, he shifts from common grace to the gift of God's saving grace. All right, this is a gift of God's inexplainable goodness that only pours down on the life of the Christian. So if you're a believer this morning, here's what's true for you. God pursued you in your mess. He spoke spiritual life into your dead body. He saved you, and he has lavished on your life his grace and his mercy and his love that will never run out. You are a recipient of the saving grace of God. And you know how he did that? He used his word to accomplish that work. He say, well, how do I know that? I know that. Look at verse 18 in chapter 1. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by what? The word of his truth. So if you're a Christian, there was a time in your past where your lost soul intersected with the truth of God's word. It might have been in a service like this. It might have been in a revival service. It might have been in a youth revival service. It might have been at VBS. It might have been you uh, listening to a sermon, reading God's word, someone walking alongside of you, maybe a parent with you in your bedroom as a child walking you through scriptures. But there was a moment when God, through the work of his spirit, used his word to bring you to new life. Whether you got and so what that means is in that moment when that happened, whether you were six years old and you were six years old and you were stealing erasers and lying to your parents, and that was the extent of how your sin was manifesting itself, or you were seventy-six and you had lived a long life of drag activity and gang activity. I don't know how many seventy-year-olds are running in the gang life, but whatever it is. No matter how extreme sin had manifested itself in your life, the same problem of sin was the same and the same Savior through his same word of truth saved all of us the same way. You know what that means? Everybody's testimony in here who is a recipient of the saving grace of God, it's a varsity level testimony. All of it is an equally like crazy, incredible, supernatural work of God. It was a miracle. You weren't just a mostly bad person who God turned into a better version of you. You were a dead as a dog person who he made alive. And the way that happened is that the word of truth came to you, captured you, changed you, and made you new, gave you new appetites, gave you new desires, gave you a new antenna that picks up frequency in a different way from his word of truth. It changes your relationship with the word. Now this word's your word. These stories are your stories. And the word that had the power to save you now has the power to sanctify you. That's why we treasure it in our life. The word that had the power to save my life and the word that has the power to now sanctify my life is the word I treasure in my life. And I think that's the point James is making. Now, we're gonna move to the next step, which we gotta treasure it, but we also gotta study it and we gotta read it. But what you'll see, and I'm going to give you all of these steps this morning, he's going to tell us to treasure God's Word, he's going to tell us to read God's Word, and he's going to tell us to live God's Word. And what you'll see is all these kind of work together. If you're treasuring God's Word, you're going to read his Word. If you're reading his Word, you're going to do his Word. If you're doing and living his Word, you're going to treasure his Word. And on the cycle of sanctification continues. The second point is this. Not only are we treasuring God's Word, we actually got to open it up and read it. In verse 19 and 20, we run into one of these places in James where it's like, is he jumping to another subject? Like, what's this about right here? It, it, is he, it, it, I thought he's talking about hearing and doing the word. What does any of this in verses 19 and 20 have to do with that? Well, I believe it is to be understood in the context of the main point that he's making here about being a hearer and doer of the word. In verse 19, you'll notice he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, which is comforting. But a lot of times when you hear that, you better watch out. That's heads up language. You know, I was saying, hey, I love you. And that ain't going to change. We need to talk. We got some stuff we need to talk about. Like, you, when you hear that right there, like, we, we love that, that's, that's great, that's good, that's, you know, he's reminding us of our identity, that we're forever loved by God, and that never changes, but it, you also better be going, hey, there's, there's an elbow of truth coming down off the top ropes, and that's what he does right here. Verse 19, he says this, know this, my beloved brothers, he's talking, to, of course, to Christians, he said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I think this is the big point Paul is making how this connects with the bigger point that he's making here is to be a hearer of God's word and also to be a doer of God's word, but to be a hearer of it right here, it takes a, it takes a great amount of humility. The humility is the opposite of hostility. Is that not the point that he's making here to tell you to get away from? He says, people who are basically he's saying this, I believe he's saying, people who are full of quick fly off the handle speech and anger, It's not that it just doesn't please God. It doesn't please God. It doesn't put you in a posture to hear from God. We see a a pattern in courage there, right there. What does it say? Quick, slow, slow, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We like it. Our default setting is to like a different, you know, order. And we can drift back to that even after we come to Christ. Where we don't like the quick, slow, slow. We like the slow, quick, quicks. We we tend to be slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to get angry. And what James is saying is angry, fast-talking people usually aren't very teachable people. J.A. Moitner said this, he's a Bible scholar. I like the way he said this. He said, if we do not have an attentive ear in the ordinary circumstances of life, we do not become different people when we shut the door and open up our Bible. The great talker is rarely a great listener and rarely is the ear more firmly closed than when anger takes over. Anger in your heart, bitterness in your heart, jealousy in your heart. You know what that's doing? It's a sin against God but he kind of teases out what it is. It's hogging the attention of your life. It's an attention hog. And it often manifests itself in you wasting a lot of time and using your time in destructive ways with a lot of chatter and slander and a lot of talk that tears people down with negative words instead of building people up. This is a, the description of a person who is not in a posture to hear. Again, here hear echoes of Proverbs right here, don't you? Proverbs warns us of this. He leads us in another direction. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. You know, I wonder how much of this needs to be applied in the area of social media. You know, the world may not need to hear my commentary, often our, you know, not so nice commentary on every single current event under the sun. And when you do engage, ask that question. Am I quick to listen? Am I slow to speak? Am I slow to anger? You know, he has a section in this book called Taming the Tongue. James is, James is really big on being very careful about your words and your words, showing what's in your heart. And he has a whole section called Taming the Tongue, but I wonder how much, you know, for us, that might need to be called Taming the Thumbs. What we post, what we text, what we tweet. Here's the big point. He's making a quick talking a quick-tempered person is not a teachable person. And then James points out, just in a very common sense way, he's like, and by the way, the anger that you're letting just kind of fester in your heart, that you're holding on to, almost like as a weapon or as a survival tactic, something you're letting fester in you, what is that good is that going to do anyway? Notice he says that. He's saying, does it produce any righteousness? Like, has any, has you been ang- ever been like super angry at someone or a situation or a group of people? Has that ever actually healed the situation? Like is in the history of humanity, has there ever been someone who's cut somebody off in traffic and the person that cu- got cut off just shows you, gets angry and yells things and... and you ever been there, right? Yeah. Anybody like me, like you're a recovering road rager, you know, you just, you, sometimes people just get you the maddest on the road. In the history of humanity, has, has anybody ever been the recipient of that anger? Maybe they're the person that cut the person off and they, and they just got, they just got the, the brunt of that person's anger. Has the person who got the brunt of the anger, has that person ever walked over and knocked on the, door, the window and said, hey, I chased you down over in this parking lot. Hey, the way that you were shaking your fist at me back there and that string of filthy language you use, thank you. Thank you. I needed that. I'm committed to be a better driver. I'm committed to, to be more attentive on the road. Thank you. Bless you. I appreciate your help today. Never." James said the path of the disciple is your job is to be quick to forgive, quick to apologize, quick to listen, slow to speak. Hey, there are times for righteous anger because some of you may be pushing back right now. Hold on a second. I've read the Bible. What about righteous indignation? There's times to be angry, right? There's right things to be angry at. Hey, I've read about Jesus. Hey, what about Jesus in the temple? He flipped over tables. He was full of anger, righteous indignation. First of all, I'd say you sound a little angry. You might want to calm down. <laughs> but I would say be very, very cautious because, one, number one, you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. We're seeking to be like Jesus. But Jesus was literally the infinite, holy, creator God wrapped in flesh. And we got to be very careful that we don't take the moments that he showed righteous indignation and use it to kind of blanket over all of our acts of anger and try to justify those moments. If you're following Christ, I would say that moments of righteous indignation are few and far in between. And most of your time following Jesus on that path of following him is a lot about being quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to forgive. Even your enemies following his example on the cross, looking down at those who even were crucifying him in in that moment saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Extending grace, And that is a path that leads to less fleshly anger. That's a path that leads you to those right, appropriate moments to have righteous indignation in an appropriate way. And that's the path that that puts you in positions to hear from God. That's the description of a teachable person. Verse 21, James wants to make sure he's not just talking about ridding your life of anger. He's saying, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That word filthy there is the same exact word that he used for shabby clothing when he gets down to showing partiality to someone who's dressed a certain way. And basically he's saying this, James isn't a whole, he's not super concerned about what you wear, he's concerned about what's in your heart. And he's saying, put it away, that phrase put it away is is the literal phrase there, the imperative in the original language is remove, it's literally this, it's remove the earwax. That's the word picture those readers would have seen, remove the earwax. Kind of gross, but it's very clear. So if you're somebody that goes, man, I just don't hear God speaking to me like I used to. I just, I really desire to hear God speak to me more. I feel like the volume of his word is kind of at a low volume and I just can't figure out why he won't speak to me. It's usually connected to other things in your life, the knobs of those things, the volume's turned up high. It's usually connected to sin in your life. We allow the sewage of the world into our heart and often we can deceive ourselves into thinking that things like that are not happening when if we'll step back and allow God's word to show us they may are happening way more often than we realize. Even in ways that we're spending our time recreationally with what we watch, movies we see, music we listen to, if we'll stop and think about this, am I being entertained right now by the very things Jesus died for? And when we do that and we're not careful about that, it clogs up our spiritual ears. It's been said, and so many good quotes are from dead guys who walked with Jesus. So I'm about to quote one of them. It's been said either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And What James is saying is if you approach God's word with a contrite heart, confessing sin, being slow to speak, quick to hear, it positions you then to receive it. Now that word receive there is, it's important to understand that. There's two words, you know, in the Greek there, was, there were two words for receive uh, one of them meant like to receive, like grab. So if you needed that coffee this morning and Dunkin' Donuts drive through, like, you grab it, I need it, right? That's one way to receive. That's not the way he's talking about it right here. This is the word dekoma. This is meaning to receive or to welcome into your, the, 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 the home of your heart, like you welcome a guest into your home. Receiving the word into your life like you would receive a guest into your home. So you, Christmas just happened. It's a, that picture of you embracing, welcoming people in. This is the picture that Paul gives us in Colossians 3.16, to let the word of God dwell richly in you. This is the idea of God's word being at home in your heart. Is God's word home in, at home in your heart this morning? I'm talking about always there. I'm talking about he's, he access to all the different rooms of my house. He's got the keys. He's got the garage door code, one, two, three, four, enter. And I probably got some of you right there. You might wanna go home and change that. Some of us never change it from that. It's the picture of the Word of God comfortably and richly and abundantly at home in my heart. And when that happens, when I put myself in a position, in that posture of humility, teachable, humble, and I lean in and I receive His Word into my heart, what James is saying is it does something. What does it do? It's able to save your souls. It's able to save your souls. What did he mean right there when he said that? He's not talking about the salvation of your soul. Is it like the eternal salvation of your soul, that saving grace that you've experienced? He's talking about salvation in the sense of sanctification, saving you from the power of sin in your life, transforming you more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, growing you to look more and more like Jesus. That's the work that that the word has the power to do in your life if you receive it into your heart and if it makes a home in your heart. So let me ask you, just real question, rhetorical, do you desire to be free of sin in your life? Do you desire to walk in purity? Do you desire... Some again, I need to say this because you came to church this morning. We're all looking nice with our, you know, some of our church clothes on and uh, we're you know, sitting up looking good, but it's easy to hide in plain sight at church. And deep down, maybe you're a follower of Christ and let, yet you desire getting out of some kind of sin cycle that's got your number. And you say... What can help me get traction? What is the main tool that God will use? I'm telling you, it's his word. The word is what sanctifies you. The word is what will restrain your flesh. The word is what will help shape you more and more to the image of Christ. There's other resources. There's other ways that can help you, but you can't get away from the truth that God's word is the main tool. And and you ask, well, well, how can I get that out of it? How can I experience that kind of healing, the healing power that the Word can have in my life to free me from sin? How can that happen? Well, he's covered some of them. He says, take a posture of teachability, right? Make sure there's no secret sin, like confessing sin. What's the next step? How can I get the most out of this? And you came all the way to church to hear this this morning. You ready? What's the key to getting what you can get out of this book? What's one of the main things? You ready? It's three words. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these down. Here it is. This is profound. This is groundbreaking. Here it is. You read it. You got to read it. You have to sit down and you have to read it. There's no shortcut. We are a generation, we are a culture of shortcuts. We got the attention of goldfishes in a span of a goldfish. We don't like to watch ads. There's not a person in here probably sitting around looking at ads on YouTube. It's four, three, two, one, skip. Show me the video. We don't want to watch the intro, you know, Netflix and those streaming services have given us the way to skip intros to to TV shows. We are are intros skipping microwave, uh, eating fast food, eating shortcut generation. We don't like, we, we like the shortcut. And I'm here to tell you this morning, when it comes to your sanctification, there is no shortcut. John 17, 17, this is what Jesus is praying for you. The high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed this over the life of his disciples. You call yourself a disciple, this is what he prayed. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. You've got to read it. No other thing is going to restrain your flesh. I'm going to get real practical for you with you this morning. It means you've got to get your own copy of it. We'll get you a copy of it if you don't have one. You say, well, what translation should I, should I read? I, I would, there's a lot of different translations out there as far as what your pastor would teach you, if you were sitting in and we were having a, you know, a conversation, I would say a word-for-word translation, King James Version, New King James Version, New American Standard, English Standard Version. There's a new revision of the Holman Translation called uh, the CSB. Those are really good translations. Get you a Bible. Get your own Bible. Get you a study Bible. Get you a one-volume commentary. Those are easy to find. Amazon it. Google it. That's like you having the phone number to a really smart Bible scholar that you can just pick up the phone and ask him a question anytime you have a question. Get you a notebook, map out a plan, get to work. See someone here who's walking with the Lord, walking in the word. They will help you. In fact, I'll give you a 45 second crash course on studying God's word. Here's three parts to it. Number one is observation. You need to open up God's word. You need to find a quiet place to sit down, go through a passage of scripture and it begins with this step of Observation. That means you open the text and you just simply ask what's here. You're a detective on the crime scene. My wife loves CSI and all those movies or those shows, and I've watched it enough to know that when the detective's on the scene at first, they're not there to draw conclusions. They're there to, to gather evidence. They're writing, you're writing down what you see. You're gathering facts, and then you move into interpretation. You're taking the information that you've collected, and you're seeking to understand the meaning of the text. So as I moved into this text of scripture this week, I didn't come with my ideas and my my own interpretation of what's going on here. I came with the understanding that in this text of scripture in all of every passage, every text of scripture, part of scripture, there's an intended meaning that God has in that text. I'm just mining it out. It's there. My job is to be a good student of God's word and to mine out the truth that's already there. So I'm looking at the context. I'm paying attention to differences in the culture then, than the culture today. So if I'm reading about them washing feet, right, I need to understand that that was different back then. That was a big deal back then in that culture. That doesn't necessarily mean I need to go around washing people's feet. That might not go well for me. I'm looking for words like therefore, words that are going to tie this pattern, words like therefore that tie this passage back to a previous text, and then after that, you take that study Bible, you take that commentary, and what you're doing is you're seeing what you got right and then seeing what you didn't get so right, what you missed. You say, well, what about writing in my Bible? What, what, do, you, do you think it's okay to write in my Bible? I would say, absolutely. Write in your Bible, circle words, draw connections, and just light it up with notes. Light up your notebook with notes. Put some miles on it, some of the most prized possessions that I have are copies of God's word that are covered in ink. The pages are, are curled up and some pages covered with tears. Mark it up. But never forget this, that more important than you putting marks all over your Bible is that your Bible's putting marks on you. More important than you putting marks on your Bible is that your Bible's putting marks on you, which is the third part of, of understanding how to study God's word. Observation, interpretation, application, which is the final point of the message this morning. We treasure it, we read it, and we live it. And there's this duality here that just has to be embraced if you're a serious disciple. And this is what I mean. The word of God planted in our heart is what the Holy Spirit uses to change us. It's what empowers us. It's completely a work of God. The word implanted in me is what's doing the work. I'm not doing the work. It's a complete work of God. And yet I have a responsibility to apply it. I have a responsibility to get to work. And, and if you aren't doing that, If you aren't doing that, what James would say as you read through his book, is James would say, I can't stress enough my concern for you. An indication that you are new and that you have new life is not perfection, but that there's a noticeable progression, that you're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but progressively. James teaches, like the rest of the New Testament and the Bible teaches, that we're saved by grace alone. We're not saved by what we do. You can't do enough good things to wash the sin stain off of your heart. You needed something outside of yourself to come in and to save you and bring you to new life and to wash that sin stain off. And that's that's the work of the gospel in your heart, completely that. He would teach salvation is by grace through faith alone, but he would teach that authentic faith is never alone. That evidence that my faith is authentic is that that authentic faith is working and it's producing the character of Christ in me. Listen, the goal of this morning, the goal of being in God's word, the goal of being in your small group class, if you were in small group this morning, the goal of your your daily Bible study isn't just retaining information. It's transformation. Spiritual maturity is not about what you know. It's about how you live in light of what you know. The goal is obedience. If you missed that point, you've missed completely the point of what God's word is to be in your life. And he uses an illustration of a guy in front of a mirror to make his point right there. Do you see what he's doing? And let's read it again as we um, kind of begin to wrap up here. Look at verse 23. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and ought to do it, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets at once what he is like. He likens God's word to a mirror. Now, most of us looked in a mirror, at least at some point today. Before you came to church, you looked in a mirror. Now, how much time you spent in front of that mirror will vary. The ladies probably spent a little more time leaning in and inspecting than the guys. Probably looked in, good, and just walked away. But why would we spend time, all of us, looking into a mirror uh, this morning or multiple times a day because of what it does for us? A mirror shows us what's true. A mirror shows us what we need to change. It shows us if we got you know, ketchup on our face or Chick-fil-A sauce on our face and we need to wipe it off. It shows us if we got hair out of place. And it's a very simple illustration, and before we get to the obvious part of it, it, we also need to see it as a very encouraging illustration. Don't miss that. Oftentimes we'll go to that kind of that example, just how foolish we can be, like somebody running away from a mirror, not changing something, and we don't stop and think about how this is communicating, how much of a blessing God's Word is to us. It's a mirror that shows us what is true. It's never going to lie to you. In a world that's, that's broken, that's... that's you got an enemy that's prowling, that wants to destroy you, that whispers lies into your heart, with an, your own desires, we looked at last week, of the desires of our flesh that will entice us. You know, there's deception that's talked about in this book, and probably the worst kind of self-deception. We lie to ourselves. Placing ourselves, he's given us this, the gift of his word, a word of truth that will never lie to us. It always shows us what is true. It always offers a perfect diagnosis for our issues and always the perfect prescription, always. And is that not what we want? Is that not what we would truly desire as a Christ follower? Don't we want that? Is that not what you want when you go to the doctor? Somebody get me straight up with you? Who wants to go? Nobody wants to go to the doctor, a doctor who's lazy and unfocused and who's gonna lie to you. That doctor's gonna go out of business. That ain't gonna work. Imagine you go into the doctor's office this week and you come in and you have some issues that you've really, you've been concerned about, all right? And so you've, you know, been really nervous that week, and and you finally make an appointment. And you go in, and here comes the, the big man, the doctor, the one you've been waiting to see. And he comes in. He's on the phone. He's like, "Hey, how you doing?" So anyway, that game last night. Can you believe that? I didn't think he would run for that many yards. Well, I'll be with you in a second. So, what do you want to do tonight? You want to have pizza? Oh, we had Chinese food last night. One second. He has a stethoscope and he comes over and he goes, "Hey, hey, one second, one second. Let me check on this person." Ooh, ooh, oh my goodness. Anyway, so did you get my email about the other thing the other day? Hey, hey, listen, you go out there. I'll send the paperwork out. You'll be good. You're fine. Nothing's wrong you're good. Would you ever go back to that doctor? Never. Why? You go to a doctor to examine you thoroughly, to discuss with you clear. That's what a good physician is. God is the perfect physician for your soul. And he administers care primarily through the ministry of his word. It's always gonna reveal to you what is true about himself. He's always gonna reveal to you through it what's true about his son, what's true about the gospel, what's true about you if you're in Christ, and he's gonna show you the things that don't belong that are not aligning with the character of Jesus. But here's the thing. You put yourself in front of it, you're responsible to do that. You're responsible to hear it. But going back, pulling that example back of the mirror back in, that's not the end of it. We also have the responsibility to then walk away and apply it in our life. And if we don't, what he's saying is that makes zero sense. That's like going to a doctor who you trust, who says you got treatable cancer. Here's what you need to do. You need to immediately go over and see this specialist. And we're going to walk with you through it. But here's the next six steps that you need to take. And you go home and follow it away and move on with your life. It doesn't make sense. It's like looking in a mirror and seeing the ketchup on your face and walking away and acting like it's not there. It doesn't make sense. The purpose of the Bible is to change you. A lot of people are charmed by it. Few people are changed by it. A lot of people possess a copy of it. Few walk in the power of it. Tony Evans said this, we view scripture a lot like we view the queen of England. She holds top position in the country, but she really doesn't hold any power. God has given us his word to change us. Listen, not to control us. Young people, listen to me. Often we can view this book as a bunch of thou shall nots, fill in the blank with fun things that I wish I could do, but the Bible says I can't do. And viewing God as some cosmic killjoy who wants to control your life. He's not not giving you the word to walk in it so that he can control you. He gives us his word that we can look into that shows us what is true and then we can apply it so that we can experience what is good for us and what will bring him glory so that we can experience what he says there is a law of liberty for our life. There's freedom and joy and abundant life experienced know in knowing his word and doing his word. John 8, 832. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The enemy will continue even after you begin to follow Christ. He'll continue to convince you And you'll be tempted to deceive yourselves into thinking still after you come to Christ that following the ways of the world is where true freedom and joy and fulfillment is found and following the ways of God are bondage. When the reality is, the truth is, the exact opposite. So let's be doers of the word. That's that's the message James has given us. Don't live with a bunch of unmetabolized information on the shelves of your mind, collecting dust, get to work. Authentic faith works, hey, and it takes effort. Bottom line is it takes effort. Gospel-fueled effort. Not that we're working to live out God's word, to earn his love, we're working to live out his word because of his love. Because he died to set me free from it. It's filled me with his spirit. And so I get to work. It takes work. Gospel-fueled work. But make no mistake, it is work. I spoke at a youth event in Georgia this past weekend, and I was driving on the way home last night. And you know what I like when I'm driving down the road on the highway? You know what feature I really like? It's cruise control. To think one day we won't even need that. We just Everybody will have a car that will drive themselves. I like it because it's easy. I don't got to mess with the accelerator. It's less work. And as I was preparing this message this week, I thought, is that not the exact same way a lot of people want their Christian life? Don't want to be a devoted Christian, don't want to be a dangerous disciple, don't want to be a radical Christian, just a Christian. Can I just be a Christian and just cruise? And yet when we look through books like James, the Christian life isn't compared to a cruise ship, it's not compared to cruise control, it's, it's compared in scripture to a battleship. To a tanker, to, hey, to a to a race car in the middle of a heated race. I don't know a lot about NASCAR. I don't watch a lot of it. I know that everybody takes a left turn most of the time. But I know this. I know enough to know this. They don't have cruise control. They have one thing on their mind, and their mind's focused, and it's to get to that finish line faithfully. And so there's a focus, and there's an attentiveness, and there's a devotion that they may see that happen. And so it's... The same in our race. Hey, it's a complete work of God, and yet we have work to do. Hey, I don't know what this year holds. I don't, I don't know what this year holds. I do know this. This past year, man, and the year before that, is beating some people up. And it's creating this weird lull, spiritual lull, spiritual laziness, kind of an indifference, I'm telling you, more than ever, we need this passage. What's the answer moving into this year? I don't know if it's a five-part message on you being encouraged through another discouraging year. I don't know if it's some kind of self-help type topical sermon series. You know what I think the answer is? For us to believe the gospel, for us to believe that Jesus is king, for us to fill our hearts with his truth and to double down on being faithful to live it out. I think that's what God's calling us to. And by his grace, I pray that we'd be a church that would do just that and experience the growth that he has for us. Let's pray.